0: Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems, it's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too.
0: Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us once again as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. Now, you may have noticed the schedule has been a little bit disrupted in the last couple of weeks, so apologies for that. It's due entirely to the return of touring. It's a, it's a good problem to have, but the fact that Pete Smith is now out leading tours across the battlefields and I'm here in Australia urgently trying to organize tours for people to get over to the battlefields in 2022, it's meant we've been a little bit disrupted with the podcast, but I promise we're about to get back on track. Thank you for sticking with us. Through this uh, difficult time. We're about to get back on track with the podcast and we've got lots of great things coming up. And this week, we're not out and about. It's another one of our special episodes, formerly only available to subscribers, uh, but we're going to present it now to everyone. And this week, following on from our chat about machine guns that we did last week, this week we're going to talk about something a little bit unusual food. We're going to talk about food during the First World War. What did the soldiers eat? Where did it come from? How were they kept supplied? It's a fundamental part of running any army is to keep them well fed it's always been the issue with getting large groups of people out in the battlefield is how do you keep them fed and uh, that hasn't changed over the centuries it's still an issue today in the first world war it was a very big issue and they had some novel ways of dealing with it so this episode deals all specifically with logistics Related to food and keeping the troops fed it 's part of the story of the first world war that 's not over not often explored, and so Pete and I are very happy to sit down and have a chat about this. so I hope you enjoy it, and we look forward to joining you next week as we walk back across the battlefields of Europe. Hello and welcome to the next of our bonus episodes for subscribers only. Thank you very much for joining us as a subscriber. Great to have you on board with this bonus content. Pete and I enjoy the chance to sit back and, and have a chat about a few things that we don 't get to talk about in the main podcast, so thank you for joining us. In this endeavour, Pete, welcome back to the bonus
2: episodes. Great to be on a bonus episode. I can relax. I've got no notes. I can make things up as I go along. It's very laid back, isn't it? I I do feel
0: the same. We record our main episode and now we get the chance to just sit back and just have a bit of a chat. There is a very relaxed feeling around. I I really quite like it. So thank you, dear listener, for joining us because it's it's quite a different experience to the main podcast. We, um The machine guns we did last week was well received, Pete. That was a good episode and I, I enjoyed doing it. We I don't yeah. realise until we get stuck into these specific topics how many interesting things there are to talk about.
2: Well, I think the problem we've got, isn't it, is that once you start talking, you forget that these are supposed to be kind of a bit snappy and a bit quick and we're off <laughs> and an hour later we're thinking, hang on a minute, we're still talking. So, uh, yeah.
0: I think this one is uh, the one that's particularly in danger of that, but we'll do our best to not have it go on too long. We're going to talk about food and provisions and, you know, an army marches on its stomach. And it's something we overlook. I, you know, my friend Reese Crawley here in Australia is, uh, you know, does a lot of work on the First World War, and he's he's a big man in logistics, particularly at Gallipoli. And uh, he uh, he always says that he's put, he puts the sexy back into logistics, which uh, which certainly sums things up. That um, <laughs> it's it's something that gets overlooked, logistics and feeding an army, but it's obviously essential to uh, to
2: keeping men alive and fighting it is indeed so what were they eating and how did it get to them and there's a load of other things uh, uh, so the subjects I was kind of quickly thinking what we're going to be talking about what was the official food how did it get to them what else did they get uh, behind the lines and did they get food from home and the answer to all of those is yes they got all all of the above um, so where are we going to start so I think well should we start with uh, what was their official food in the front line what would they have been eating in the front line Well, one thing I wanted to just
0: mention here before we kick off is historically before the First World War or before the wars of, you know, the more modern wars that the First World War would definitely count as, the way that they used to feed armies is they used to have livestock as well behind the, behind the armies, you know, traditionally as armies marched into battle, they would have livestock and, and shepherds and, and, and people to look after the animals. Well, women. And uh, they would, yeah, they would go into battle with, with livestock and then they'd slaughter the animals and, and, and feed them. So that worked fine when the battlefield was relatively small when arrows were the only things being flung around. But obviously that wasn't going to work when uh, when they started firing up artillery pieces and devastated the entire landscape. So, Pete, how did they do it?
2: Well, I think the most interesting thing is obviously the invention of tins and glass jars. I mean, those are going to be crucial. Um, so what are they going to be putting in the tins? Well, the soldiers' nightmare food, I suppose, was bully beef, uh, renowned for, which is effectively corned beef, uh, renowned for being in the summer you poured it out of the tin and in the winter you hacked it out of the tin. So the, the weather depended upon the, uh, what it was like. Um, and so that would literally, you would open a tin, we, we get them now, the, the, one of those tins with a little key on the side that you twist and you go around the, the top and normally it snaps off halfway around and then you're trying to get the top off with a knife and liable to cut your finger off, well no change in the First World War, they had all of those problems and what's fascinating, we still find them, we still find the, the remnants of those tins in the battlefield, so bully beef, that would be one of the foods. The second one was jam, again, in a tin. So, uh, But this one didn't have a self-opener. You had to kind of get a, a tin opener in there and, and open it. Um, and it always used to be a soldier's joke. It was always plum and apple. And they used to say, when is it going to be strawberry or raspberry or anything other than, uh, than plum and apple? And, of course, it's always going to be plum and apple because they're cheap and you could grow them almost anywhere. So plum and apple jam was uh, one of the other foodstuffs. And then
0: I we get just. I'm going to just jump in briefly to talk about jam because it's one of my favourite anecdotes. Yep. i have mentioned it before on the podcast, but uh, Peter Hart talks all the time about Gallipoli, about what the it was a it was a veteran that told him this that that, that actually said this to him, it's stuck with him ever since. So in the heat of because we should remember the First World War wasn't just the Western Front, you know, nope, also indeed the, some of the harsh environments of Gallipoli and elsewhere. And a soldier uh, told Pete during one of his oral history interviews that, uh, that the saying on Gallipoli in the heat of summer. Was that a fly's two favourite foods were shit and jam, and <laughs> they'd fly from one to the other, and it was it, it, it's just used as an example of the how illness spreads so readily on the battlefields that uh, mm-hmm. you know when when you know when there's so much human waste lying around and then you're trying to eat a meal of jam as soon as you open a jam tin, flies are just going to swarm on it and um, the, some yeah. of the famous I mean the famous of all the bastards of a place this is the greatest bastard of them all uh, came about because of an Australian soldier trying to describe how to eat jam on a biscuit without it getting covered in flies. Uh, so, um, so jam. The the soldiers, you know, connection to jam yep. was far reaching during the war. And,
2: uh, never, ne- never necessarily a good one. No, indeed, not um hard tack biscuits they really seriously weren't joking when they said they were hard these biscuits were just kind of almost square uh, uh, really really kind of bulletproof biscuits and in fact they were so hard uh, and this is uh, this became a chargeable offence, but soldiers would stick a stamp on one corner, write an address on the biscuit, and post it to their relatives as like a postcard. The uh, uh, the biscuits, and it became a chargeable offence because it was bringing the army into disrepute by doing that. And I've actually had one in my collection um, uh, with a, a stamp on the corner of it. Uh, so. So the, the biscuits we're talking about here look much like a um, you know in Australia
0: we have a biscuit called a sayo so basically imagine a thick sayo imagine a sayo about a centimeter thick that's that's sort of the, with the little holes in it yep. that's the that's sort of what they look like but uh, demonstrating their um, their durability in the Imperial War Museum in London is in their Gallipoli sec' very small Gallipoli display they have from an Australian soldier his name and details carved into an army biscuit yeah, <laughs> which is still sitting there over a century later, perfectly preserved. Yep. So uh, they were uh, they were tough. How, find, did they, well,
2: let's, how did they eat them, Pete? Like, how well, did they deal well, with this tea, rock with, hard with, the, with They tried with tea, basically, to soften them with tea. And I suppose if you could actually smash one and get a piece into your mouth over a period of time with the moisture, it would, have, it would eventually break down. Uh, but they were fairly kind of hideous things to, to put in your mouth. And I, I found a fantastic account in, a, in a, an Australian battalion's war diary where they were asking for all the men to hand in their hard-tack biscuits and uh, the uh, the quartermaster had found a local mill with a crushing uh, a crushing mill who would take the biscuits he would crush the the biscuits and he would return it as a flour and then the men could put it into their stews or they could do lots of other things with it but it made it it made it more, more usable than than actually the biscuit itself and i thought that was very uh, very uh, very interesting that they would do that so yeah so the hard tap biscuits i have to say there's a lot of these well, the, things that 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 we will talk about that i remember from my time they hadn't kind of gone a, a great deal further forward the biscuits weren't quite as hard as that uh, and some of them had uh, raisins in them as well but we also had a very hard biscuit that uh, yeah was fairly fairly bulletproof i have to say
0: the other thing that, that we've seen that have turned up from time to time i've seen in museums is like an improvised grater that they used to get a sheet of metal and bash holes in it with a nail and then on the rough side, obviously where the nail had come through, that would yep. be like a bit of a, like a cheese grater. And then they would use that to grate up the biscuits as best they could to again to make a powder. And then they could make some sort of porridge, mix a bit of jam in there or a bit of stew, and, and turn it into some sort of porridge. But uh, yep. you know, just extraordinary and and interesting as well. You say that it carried on through you know through the uh, through the decades. Um, speaking to some World War II veterans who'd fought in Guadalcanal with the Americans when the Marines first arrived at the in August 1942 on Guadalcanal because they 've been sent at short notice. They were issued with 1918 rations. So they, ra- this is how long this stuff lasted. Yep. <laughs> their their yep. rations that they were given to land on the beaches in 1942 had been uh, issued in 1918, during the, during the Great War.
2: Well, I remember... <laughs> obviously hardy stuff. It's, it's, it's no different. I remember opening up uh, uh, chocolate bars and finding the date on the chocolate bars, and this would be in the early 80s, and these chocolate bars were from the 60s. Um, and well, this tasted all right, but I suppose I wasn't that fussed, really. <laughs> You're not that worried. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, some of this food was designed to last a long, long while.
0: Is that, is that why the biscuits were so hard, simply for that reason? That, that, yeah, I think the so. M- made, made
2: them very, very durable. Yeah, very durable. Uh, Especially less likely to go mouldy if there's no uh, moisture in them. Yeah, ab- uh, absolutely. So with all of this food, uh, you can imagine it's fairly uh, bland as well. If you, and, uh, uh, and also uh, depressing if you're eating the same thing day in, day out. Uh, and so the soldiers would try and enhance things themselves, and so you uh, you often get, and we did exactly the same, I have to say, in my period we, we did the same. We took curry powder, take a little twist of curry powder in either a, a plastic little plastic bag or uh, in a, a foil, um, Oxo cubes. That kind of thing. Well, during the war, of course, the men requested from home, can you send me out some HP sauce or some kind of sauce so that uh, I can add that to my bully beef and it kind of livens it up a bit and uh, makes, uh, makes it feel a little bit more homely, I suppose, and more tasty. So all over the battlefields again, we find fragments of bottles or complete bottles uh, for the v- va- variety of sources, including HP sauce, which of course is still made today, still comes in a square, a square uh, glass uh, a ju- a bottle, um, as it did during the Great War.
0: Pete, I'm going to ask you to tell me about bottles in a minute with a <laughs> sense of trepidation. But just before we do that, I just might before I forget my connection with bottles on the Western Front is that uh, in 2007 I made the documentary Lost in Flanders, where we excavated an Australian trench system, and one of the things that I dug up, I with some very talented archaeologists, I didn't contribute much to the dig, but they gave me the opportunity to jump in the trench every now and again and dig some stuff up. But I found um, an Eno's bottle, Eno's salts for indigestion, which I thought was extraordinary. So that had obviously been set at a care package from home. I wouldn't have thought that indigestion was too much of an issue for soldiers at the front line. But the interesting, there was an interesting connection about that because I um, saw an interview with Peter Weir, the director, the film director, talking about what inspired him to make the movie Gallipoli in 1981. And he said that in the 70s, he went to Gallipoli and as he was walking the ground, he uncovered a whole heap of relics that were still there. And one of the things he found was an Eno salts bottle. Um, that he'd found that had obviously been sent in a care package yep. and that very bottle they then used in the movie there's a scene where Mel Gibson is opening a care package from home and sort of scoffing at the stuff that he'd been sent including Eno's salts an Eno salts bottle and that was the bottle that Peter Weir had found at Gallipoli then he used in the film and that was what inspired him because he just said just the the story of this bottle came from Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane had been sent to Gallipoli a soldier has opened this in a care package used it and then discarded it and then Nearly a century later, I I uncovered it. And that was part of what inspired him to make the movie Gallipoli. And then fast forward another another 30 years and there I dug up an Eno salts bottle on the western front so just have you come
2: across those before things like medications and well uh, as you know just recently I I was given a rather large collection of uh, of bottles of glass bottles of all different types uh, from a chap that's uh, is leaving the Somme and um, the the house that he uh, that he lived in had been a contractor that uh, lived there previously who had a digger and when he'd been digging all over the battlefields he'd come across bottles and he just kept he kept on throwing them into into containers and uh, so anyway they've just been given to me and I'm having great fun at the moment going through cleaning them and sorting them and uh, and it's a combination of you have to say of Eno salts and the like of alcohol and this is under in this collection there are both german uh, and french and british and for british i mean all of the uh, the empire forces the commonwealth forces and uh, and it's a mix it's a mix of sauces from all over the world to enhance the food alcohol from all over the place uh, to uh, to help you survive on the Western Front full stop, um, and, and then a variety of uh, remedies to cure a variety of stomach conditions caused by that, either A, the food, or B, the unsanitary conditions that you're living in. So absolutely fascinating, and I'm cataloguing all of these, and uh, I may put some pictures up later on uh, on one of the, the sites associated with our podcasts. Uh, but yeah, really good fun and, uh, and fascinating. So Pete, in terms of bro- so well
0: the first the question I was going to ask you about this is we hear about hard tack biscuits and jam and bully beef. How often was a soldier relying on that as a meal?
2: Yeah, not not too often. It it really is when he's in the front line. Uh, for that period, whether it be three days, 24 hours, during an attack, he would be expected to carry uh, uh, iron rations, which iron rations are basically hard-tack biscuits, and uh, he may, if you can get a bar of chocolate from home, he may stick that in, but it's, it's really that frontline period. Behind the lines... Everybody, no matter what you are, whether you're in an engineering battalion or company or you're an infantryman, there are field cookers. So you have to say, what are the field cookers doing? Well, they're creating, you would have to say, stews. They are creating stews from stuff that is supplied to them, so great uh, uh, lumps of ham uh, or beef, and then sometimes locally bought vegetables, but also they will be sup- uh, be supplied um, and so that's what they're doing, That they're creating stews. While I'm thinking about it, I just need to go off on a slight tangent. Most battalions set up their own canteens. So, in other words, there was a place that behind the lines, a soldier could go to his battalion canteen and, and could enhance the things himself by uh, spending some of his money in the canteen, and the, and it was subsidized. So, the, their own canteens. There was a uh, some of the money normally taken out of their pay to go into the canteen, and then the canteen would subsidize whatever they were uh, that they could they could eat. So there was there was a range, but it was all even the stews. You have to say these guys. The cooks are always maligned, something terrible, that they were never cooks. They never, ever picked anybody that could actually cook. They would pick somebody who was probably a blacksmith and gave him a, a spoon and a ladle and said, you can be the battalion cook. And there was always lots and lots of complaints about the quality of the food coming from the field cookers. But you have to say, this: the saving grace of this, it was warm occasionally hot i suppose warm would be the best for most of the time but at least it was food that was warm and that and that helped immeasurably and the same applies for tea for hot drinks uh, in the front line very difficult to keep you, get, get you a hot drink behind the lines and that was really the what the the uh, the field cookers were for. They would try and get them as near as they could in an area of safety, so that men coming in or, or, or into the line or coming out of the line could have a hot feed uh, at either either occasion, knowing that it would be difficult while they were in the line. So they tried very hard, and it
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: The whole system was very, very well organized and did, for the most part, run, run very well. Our, uh, again, our dear friend Peter Hart,
0: which and I recommend go and listen to Peter Hart military history pete and gary's military history podcast to hear some fascinating stories because pete spent his life talking to veterans and so i get many of my veteran stories secondhand from him but another one that he told me it just reminded me that i think it was in his series about the south knots hussars they did a whole series about a second world war artillery unit i think it was that one but one of the veterans he spoke to was actually a chef in his previous life he'd been working as quite a renowned chef and when he enlisted they said i'll go down this branch because otherwise you just end up in the infantry. If you go down this branch, you'll be able to contribute by, you know, your cooking skills will be much, much required in the army. And so he enlisted and went down this road. The first day in the kitchen, the only supplies that he was delivered were turnips and raw rabbits. That was what he, and he had to feed an entire company with, with turnips and rabbits. So yeah. you can just imagine the sort of. Uh, high-class colour, the hot cuisine he would come up with yeah. <laughs> with, uh, that, with those supplies. How often did the men, Peter, back to the First World War, that was a Second World War story, but back to the First World War, how often did the men, How how often could they get meat? How often could they get fresh fruit and vegetables.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about the fruit, but certainly vegetables and meat, so long as they're behind the lines, they would try and get it to them all the time. I mean, the, the it is mind-boggling when you look at, you think of the millions of men, literally the millions of men that needed to be fed on a daily basis. It, you know, it really took some organisation, but it was organised and uh, and it's one of the things I hear and you read occasionally when people say, oh, the men were starving. Well, actually they don't mean it literally. What they mean is, and I've I've mentioned this previously, I think, in the podcast. is It's just like my lad when he was growing up, and you know, when he was doing lots of exercise, he was always starving. In fact, he seemed to be starving for most of his teenage years. And you know? Well, that's what he'd say, Dad, I'm starving. Well, so did the men. They said, I'm starving, and they wrote home, I'm starving most of the time. And, of course, people tend to take it too literal. It doesn't mean that they're literally starving. It means there's not enough food to keep growing, fit, healthy men who are being asked to do uh, very, very manual tasks. They they needed really more calories and uh, and and that's what they really mean. Nobody literally on the Western Front uh, starved to death. Uh, there was uh, never that lack of food. What there was was just just mundane, having the same thing over and over again. One of the interesting things that you read is when they captured German uh, German uh, lines, when they captured a the German trench, when they overran a, a field kitchen, they always got stuck into the German food. There was never any worry about whether it had been poisoned or not. I don't think it even crossed their mind. They just ate whatever they found and and the German food was as mundane as ours. The difference was it is different, and that was the key. They actually ate different foods. So the, the, the black bread and the, and the sausages that they would get as they, as they went to the German uh, rations were so different to their own that it, that it, was, a, you know, it was something new and great.
0: Well, it's fascinating you mention that because the Germans on their side, they did start to run out of food as the blockade occurred and the famous stories we heard, which I, I, I believe are true, is that they started, you know, the, the increased amount of sawdust that used to be mixed in with the bread and yeah. um, and the common uh, common a common comment from German prisoners as they were captured when they put their hands up and say, Comrade, Comrade, you know, Nick Sheeason, don't shoot. But the other thing as they were taken into custody, they would say is, Fleisch, Fleisch, meat. They, they, the Germans were desperate for the bully beef. the hated yeah. bully beef that the that the Brits and the <laughs> Aussies couldn't wait to yeah. get rid of. The Germans were desperate for because they just couldn't get any meat in uh, in uh, in their side of the line as the blockade started to bite. So you're quite right that the the variety was. Um, it's, it probably goes back to the thing where the soldier says they're starving as well. Probably what they're starving for is their mum's cakes and jams and yeah. and scones that
2: she used to make them. They're probably desperate. Jeff's desperately missing home. Well, there's an interesting comment. Actually, I'm just going to go back quickly before before I forget. Field. Kitchens, what exactly is a field cooker or a field kitchen? Well, it is an aga, you know, the old great big metal stoves that uh, some of you may have used at some stage in the past or be aware of. Imagine an aga on wheels. Uh, That is what the field kitchens were, so they could be brought up to the front and would march with the troops. So, they, they, uh, yeah, they were were very handy. Right, back to the um, food from home. Well, that's one of the issues, is the postal system was so good for those soldiers who had relatives in Britain, that they could literally send fresh cakes and certainly fresh food and and, uh, and enhance the soldiers' diets immeasurably by sending these things to them. And very often, one of the comments that you that you come across quite often is when Old Jim's being killed, and and next day his cake arrives from him from his mother, and they have no qualms in sharing it out uh, among among them because they know that that's what he would have want them uh, to do. So food from home was was very common, obviously. For Australia's from around the Empire, that's not quite as uh, as as easy because it's so far. But there was a, basically a drive in Britain to, to an, adopt a, a soldier from the colonies almost. And so you could, you could adopt a soldier and, and be the surrogate family for them and, and so they, they would still receive some fresh, uh, fresh food as well. So, and you're looking at two or three days for, for parcels to, to arrive on the Western Front from, from Britain. So the system was, was, was excellent.
0: There's a really moving account... Um that uh, has been told about, at Pozier, the capture of the Gibraltar blockhouse. Uh, block so it was a German blockhouse that the Australians captured, and one of the first Aussies who went into this blockhouse, which is still there, I should mention. The, the cellar, the, the, the rough foundations are still there at Pozier. But one of the first Australians in there found a couple of things. There were no Germans in there anymore, but he found... Firstly, there was a greatcoat, a German greatcoat, with a hole right through the back of it where a shrapnel ball had come in, and it was soaked in blood, so obviously a German had been wounded. And probably died in the in the blockhouse in in agony after having been wounded, but also he said he found little cake boxes with little cakes in them and a little note on them in a child's handwriting. Um, and so obviously a child had sent had baked some cakes and sent them to their father in the front line and the the Australian made the connection and assumed that the man who died of his wounds obviously quite quite horrifically. In that blockhouse was the man who had these little cakes from the children. He said, and the quote that he finishes up just was something along the lines of, um, you know, some would say the man was a German, so not entitled to much sympathy, but I couldn't help thinking of the little boy or girl who sent the cakes. Just yeah, the, the, the very small moving. touches of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even for your enemy. Yeah, very, very moving.
2: Um, so, uh, so parcels did come from home. I just want to squash a, a myth, really, or quash a myth, which is interesting and, and, and sad in some ways. Uh, Anzac biscuits, which obviously we, we look at and think about because they're robust, uh, so we imagine that, uh, yes, if an Australian wanted to send something all that way from Australia, well, an Anzac biscuit would be a suitable thing to, to send – but in fact, uh, I don't think anybody's been able to find the recipe for an Anzac biscuit until after the war uh, or close to the end of the war. So I don't think Anzac biscuits are uh, quite as uh, as common on the on the Western Front as we imagine that the, perhaps they were. But I'm sure there were other biscuits that were very similar.
0: The story I've heard about Anzac biscuits, what I tell, and I could have this wrong, but this is what I believe from what I've read, and it gets a bit confused, is that people get, hear the word biscuits, particularly when it writes... Relates to Gallipoli. They hear the word biscuits and they get confused with Anzac biscuits. From what I've seen, Anzac biscuits were baked in Australia as fundraisers and to represent, you know, at fates and at stalls and yep. as fundraisers, they would bake Anzac biscuits. And the recipe came about because they couldn't get sugar and, you know, so they substituted golden syrup and, yep. you know, because things were in demand, in short supply. They did their best, and that's how they came up with Anzac biscuits. But it was not actually intended to send to soldiers in the front lines. That was that was never the uh, never the intention. So I think people get a little bit confused yeah. with the idea of an Anzac biscuit, and that also the the soldiers talk about eating biscuits when they refer to their their, their hardtack biscuits, and it, it gets a little bit confused. But I don't believe the intention was to send Anzac biscuits to the soldiers. It was for fundraisers and, and things back home,
2: which is a shame because they're damn nice. <laughs> they are very, very good. Australian ingenuity
0: of of using whatever you've got lying. Well, isn't that the thing? You know, the war, that whatever they've got lying around, they they come, they throw it together and make an Anzac biscuit. And yep. any of our international listeners who don't know what we're talking about, seek them out. They're delicious.
2: They are with the oats and golden <laughs> simple, simple to
0: make, but but very nice. And every year when we do Anzac Day, Pete at uh, at Hamel on the Western Front, and we have breakfast with the people of Hamel, that they've gotten into a tradition now of baking Anzac biscuits for the. Uh, for the Aussies, which is really lovely to see. Last time I was there, the little kids gave me a little packet of Anzac, <laughs> on Anzac. I, I fill really my pockets.
2: I know it's going to be a long day, so I fill my pockets, <laughs> and they are quite delicious. <laughs> but um,
0: so what? What get just what we like to do in these things is also talk about the experience for the men. So I know we've touched on that a lot, but what are the what were the thoughts of the men about? The food they were supplied during their time in the First World War.
2: Well, well, they were. I mean, they were, were horrified about the uh, the amount of uh, of I suppose bully beef that they ate and and this jam issue. And, and to such an extent, you can uh, go into uh, into shops and have a look, as I do quite often, and look at the old postcards, First World War postcards. I'm a collector of them. Go and have a flick through the the comic ones. And it's a reoccurring theme that you'll see over and over again about the food and the and the quality of the food. Uh, but soldiers moan about the food full stop. Having said that, I have to say that in my day, the food that we actually got from the military, and it's changed considerably nowadays, but we we had chefs and people that would, uh, would cook us food, and I always thought the food was very good, and I, I didn't ever have any problems with it. But, uh, yeah, but I think... If you were anywhere near the front line, then it became very mundane. The other thing I should add, when you mentioned about the the meat and getting the meat to the front, they did actually, as they had in the past, but this time there was no movement. In the old days, the cows and the pigs came along with you on campaign, being dragged along, looked after by camp followers and the wives that came with you. But behind the lines, up near the coast, they set up farms. And so they had farms and they had piggeries. And, and certainly they were, were breeding uh, the, the food and raising the food for the men on the front line here in France. So it didn't have to be shipped in from elsewhere. It's interesting, Pete, you talk about the quality of the food. There was a recent thing.
0: I've got lots of friends in the military here in Australia, in the modern military. And there was a recent uh, argument that was going on because anyone who knows someone who's in the modern military, I mean, your son... I'm sure Matt was, is the same. They are supremely fit. They spend all of their downtime in the gym just getting... They're the fittest people you would ever find. And there's been a real push in the Australian military to get higher quality food because these people, they're, they're living on protein shakes and yeah. and vegetables and kale and all the stuff that you know yeah. young people these days enjoy yeah. when they get back from a gym session. And so there's been a real push in the Australian military to get more fruits and vegetables and less processed food. Uh, because yeah. they're all basically gym junkies. They're gym junkies who carry weapons, and uh, and they they insist on having um, the diet to match. And uh, I think that's fair enough as well. They're they're at peak yeah. physical condition, and so we've got to make sure we support them with uh, the right uh, the right nutrients. It's
2: amazing when you're in heavy training, uh, how much uh, how many calories you need. And in my day, there wasn't that ability to to get all of these. Uh, supplements, and I'm not sure that we'd have been allowed to uh, at that time anyway. But things like I remember diving down to the naffy, and, you know, and this was common for all of us, and grabbing a pint of yoghurt and drinking that pint of yoghurt straight from the pot as you were trying to get back. And this is thick yoghurt, I'm not talking about the modern drinking yoghurt. This was thick yoghurt, and trying to drink it as you were walking or running back to your accommodation to then change into your next uniform for whatever it was doing. You just could not get enough calories inside you, to, uh, uh, and we were all losing weight all the time. Uh, and so, yeah, I think uh, we're well, back to that story again of the men were starving uh, in the front line because they couldn't do that. So they were, and we haven't mentioned this, what were they getting behind the lines from the civilian population? Well, you have to say the staple thing that they were getting were egg and chips. Uh, because any farmer's wife behind the lines worth their salt. Had uh, chucks in the yard, chickens in the yard, and uh, for the for the eggs and potatoes in store in, in storage. So it meant that any time of the year, uh, a soldier behind the lines, not just from a cafe, um, he could uh, knock on a farmer's uh, door and uh, say, "Have you got any?" Uh, well, in, in French, of course. Have you got any in pigeon French? Have you got any oofs? Uh, and uh, and they would uh, they would knock up egg and chips for them. So it was very common, and uh, I have to say, quite partial to egg and chips myself. So I would uh, I'd be Along with that,
0: and Pete, what about today? You must come across in your walks across the battlefields, and your collecting, and the things that you found. You must find examples of food and what uh, what they were consuming. What sort of things do you come across in the battlefields today?
2: Yeah, well, it's those the remnants of tins, uh, the remnants of glass containers. So one of the things we haven't mentioned pickles, so pickled things that they came out here in large numbers. So it's it's those containers really that, that you find. Of course, what you do find are bones of animals that have been butchered, but there's no guarantee that they aren't from the civilian population before or after the First World War. Um, but those are the things that, that you you tend to come across uh, when you when you're when you're looking at. And further behind the lines, we do come across the signs for the cafes a lot of them have closed now but you do realize that at one point almost every village had two or three cafes in it and you have to say that is from that period um, when there were so many people behind the lines that uh, you know anybody who had any kind of business head on would try and open a cafe or something that would uh, feed all of these men wandering about looking for food and uh, and other needs that they uh, that they that they needed the famous estaminets of the
0: uh, yep. of the rear areas. Ter- the one thing we haven't mentioned. Yep. Sorry, Pete. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just
2: gonna say estaminet. Fascinating. It's a term that's almost completely gone. We don't see. You'll the only time you'll see the, the name estaminet is is historic on the wall of where one used to be. It, it's a term that's almost totally gone.
0: Uh, One thing we didn't discuss, which you also find an awful lot of, probably the most common thing you find, is remnants of rum jars. It's not really food, but it's part of the rations. (laughs) Talk us about rum and the the rum jars.
2: Yeah, well, rum uh, was supposedly, I'm sure they didn't get it all the time, but in the morning you you had a, a splash of rum with your tea. It was called gunfire. Odd having I mean, you know, we kind of associate rum going into coffee, but it was in your tea. Um, and so rum came up in stoneware jars, big gallon, uh, in fact, the two-gallon, gallon or, or half-gallon jars, um, emblazoned with the initials SRD, which we now know stands for Stores Reserve Depot. Um, so it was about the jar, not about the contents, but that it was always rum inside. But the soldiers knew it has seldom reached destination um, on, the, uh, on the outside of the jars. And we find lots of those. And we find that because they were also utilised after the rum had gone for water. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, you literally find them everywhere. So it gives you an idea of how much rum came up on a, a daily basis to warm the, uh, the cockles of the men in the front line
0: and the jars would break obviously they, yeah. they stoneware so they, they were prone to breakage but yeah. it was the first thing I ever found on a battlefield it was outside uh, Prowse Point Cemetery I was walking just across a the field there my first ever visit only been on the battlefields for a few hours and desperate to see something from the war, to just find something tangible from the war. And I looked down and there at my feet was a shard of rum jar and I picked it up and it actually said SRD on the other side. Yeah, so it's that brilliant. Was the first one the first relic I ever found on a battlefield.
2: I think I remember so. you picking one up at Gallipoli some years ago, bending down and picking a lump of rum jar up on the uh, on the foreshore, one of the one of the foreshores at Gallipoli as well. It's common there. Yeah, as I've well got, I
0: found a few a few at Gallipoli. Yeah. They they turn up quite commonly there as well. So yeah. no, that's always a good thing to find. It's and something that people can take home, and especially if you get the corner that's got either yeah. a bit of the Glazing on it from the yeah. sort of the darker, darker brown on the top is good. Or occasionally the lettering S R D. Occasionally do get yeah. uh, if, if you're lucky enough to find a shard that's got S R D or even just a D or yeah. a fraction of a of a, yeah. of a letter on it. It's a it's a great find. So something yeah, that people is. can take home from the yeah. battlefields. They're not you know these are not precious yeah. relics that should be museums. Yeah. These are the the humdrummery of daily life. So a perfect souvenir for someone to take back from the I, battlefields. Indeed. and Indeed, millions and millions of them all over the battlefields. Yeah, they sure are. Pete, it's been wonderful. Thank you, a really interesting insight. And I mean, we could talk for many more hours on this topic, but I hope it's given a good overview of, of some of the uh, the, fac- the the facets to do with, with feeding and logistics on the battlefield. It's uh, the, There's so many fascinating topics like this that we'll explore as we go on. But um, thank you, Pete, for joining us uh, on this. And thank you for listening in on our bonus subscription episode.
2: No, it's been fantastic. Looking
1: forward to the next one. That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member for a small monthly fee. You can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad free, and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So, see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAS Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.